Hi, everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal here for this Monday, February 13th. This is Andrew Hop here on Iris filling in. Hope you're having a great afternoon. Let's check in with some of these headlines before we uh, take a look at the forecast, shall we? Unidentified object down over Lake Huron. Four objects have been shot down by fighter jets in eight days. All right. Are they UFOs? Are they Chinese spy balloons? I guess we'll find out more here in just moments. Also, master chefs in the making. North High students earn credentials in culinary program. That's a story by Earl Horlick. Lechner Lumber to Relocate, Lumberyard Plans, New Office Building and Warehouse. That's a story by Dolly A. Butts. And finally, our fourth front page story, Missouri River Ice Jam Slowly Degrading. 20-mile ice jam caused river to drop to record low. That's a story out of the Omaha World Herald by Nancy Garter. But first, uh, before we get into the full stories here on the front page of the Sioux City Journal, let's take a check of the forecast here for this Monday afternoon and the next few days. We can expect a high of 52 degrees, very mild, very nice for this afternoon. Winds from the south up to 15 miles per hour, uh, actually gusting as high as 20. So uh, gusting as high as 20 miles an hour and a high of 52 for your Monday afternoon. Tonight, a chance of rain mainly after 5 a.m., increasing clouds with a low around 36. South-southeast winds gusting as high as 30 miles per hour, a 30% chance of precipitation overnight. For your Tuesday, you can expect rain mainly after 7 in the morning, a high near 43. Winds from the southeast gusting as high as 30 miles per hour. A lot of rain for your Tuesday. New precipitation amounts between a half and three-quarters of an inch possible. Tuesday night, rain and snow before midnight, then a chance of snow between midnight and 3 a.m., low around 23 degrees. That would mean early uh, Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning, yes. And then blustery conditions with those winds from the southwest moving uh, to come out of the northwest at uh, up to 40 miles per hour on Tuesday night. So, burr, it's going to get colder and it's going to get snowier and all of those good, great, wonderful things. Chance of precipitation is 80%. New snow accumulation of less than a half inch possible. For your Wednesday, expect cloudy conditions, a high near 25. Blustery with those winds out of the northwest up to 40 miles per hour. Hang on to your hat. Wednesday night, a slight chance of snow before midnight. Mostly cloudy with low around 10. Thursday, mostly sunny, a high near 24. Thursday night, partly cloudy with low around 8. Brr, back to the cold weather. Friday, sunny with a high near 38. Friday night, mostly clear with a low around 25. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 47. Saturday night, partly cloudy with a low around, low around 25. And then Sunday, sunny with a high near 47, almost a week from today. Oh, so it'll warm back up there, hopefully, a little bit by the end of this uh, forecast. And we'll have some melting conditions again. But again, for your Monday afternoon, sunny conditions with a high near 52. As we get into those headlines and full stories now, we'll start it off with Master Chefs in the Making, North High Students Earn Credentials in Culinary Program. It's written by Earl Horlick, Dateline, Sioux City. Umi Vong and Adam Embrock aren't ready for Master Chef yet, but the North High School students still want to make their mark in the culinary world. Vong, a senior, and Embrock, or Embrock, a junior, are the first Sioux City Community School students to earn Pro Start Certificates of Achievement, or 
COAs as they're called, through the district's culinary pathway. A partnership between the Iowa Restaurant Association and the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. ProStart is a two-year program sponsored by the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. It blends classroom learning with mentored work experience as a way to teach high school students the management and culinary skills they'll need in the food service field. In order to earn a certificate of achievement, students must maintain high academic standards, complete a checklist of competencies, and work a minimum of 400 hours in the food service industry. M. Brock acquired his work credits at a fast food restaurant, as well as through an internship at a hospital culinary department. Vong also had a hospital internship as well as a part-time job at Hong Kong Food Market. My parents owned the former sushi restaurant Fuji Bay for many years, Vong said. It's been a dream of mine to follow in my parents' footsteps. I'd like to start my own restaurant. Earning a COA puts me on that path, she said. But she needs to go to college first. Next year, I'll be attending the University of Louisville as an Asian studies student. Vong, who is of Chinese and Vietnamese descent, explained, I'd like to open an Asian fusion restaurant someday. The best way to understand a country's food is through a country's history. Indeed, she wants to incorporate Mexican and Italian ingredients in otherwise Asian cuisine. M. Brock, on the other hand, is more of a meat and potatoes type of guy. I have a Midwestern approach towards food, he said. I love steak and want to open my own steakhouse in the future. One skill that M. Brock has yet to master is baking. I can't bake to save my life, he said with a shrug. Vong agreed that baking is hard. However, she saw a recipe online for a Korean cheesecake, which seemed tempting. The internet is a great place to find ideas, she said. So are TV food shows, M. Brock noted. I think both social media and cable TV have made the food fun and creative. It has certainly expanded Vong's palate. I used to hate mushrooms and tomatoes, she said. Now I love them and use them in many of my stir-fries. While he still doesn't personally like the taste of mayonnaise, M. Brock will incorporate it in his recipe. I think that is one of the best things about the district's culinary pathway, he said. You look at ingredients in a whole new way and try to include in everything that you make. Which isn't always a good thing for M. Brock's family. I love spicy stuff, and my dad can't handle spice, he mentioned with a smile. I mean any spice at all. Like Embrock, Vong's culinary creativity isn't always appreciated at home. My parents are very traditional, she said. I'll make an Asian fusion dish at home, which I'll end up eating by myself. I think my mom gives me credit for trying. She'll say, we'll eat something else, but you do you. It happens. Nevertheless, both Vong and Embrock see food as an important part in their future. Cooking knowledge will always come in handy, even if you never step foot in a restaurant kitchen, Embrock said. After all, everybody has to eat. All right, in other news, unidentified object downed over Lake Huron. Four objects have been shot down by fighter jets in eight days. This written by Colleen Long, Lolita C. Baldor, and Zeke Miller of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. A U.S. fighter jet shot down an unidentified object over Lake Huron on Sunday on orders from Joe Biden. 
It was the fourth such downing in eight days and the latest military strike in an extraordinary chain of events over U.S. airspace that Pentagon officials believe has no peacetime precedent. Part of the reason for the repeated shootdowns is a heightened alert following a spy balloon from China that emerged over U.S. airspace in late January. General Glenn Van Herc, head of NORAD and U.S. Northern Command, said in a briefing with reporters. Since then, fighter jets last week also shot down objects over Canada and Alaska. Pentagon officials said they posed no threats, but so little was known about them that Pentagon officials were ruling nothing out, not even UFOs. We have been more closely scrutinizing our airspace at these altitudes, including enhancing our radar, which may at least partly explain the increase, said Melissa Dalton, Assistant Defense Secretary for Homeland Defense. U.S. authorities have made clear they constantly monitor for unknown radar blips, and it is not unusual to shut down airspace as a precaution to evaluate them. But the unusually assertive response was raising questions about whether such use of force was warranted, particularly as administration officials said the objects were not of great national security concern and the downings weren't just out of caution. Van Herc said the U.S. adjusted its radar so it could track slower objects. With some adjustments, we've been able to get a better categorization of radar tracks now, he said. And that's why I think you're seeing these. Plus, there's a heightened alert to look for this information. He added, I believe this is the first time within United States or American airspace that NORAD or United States Northern Command has taken kinetic action against an airborne object. Asked if if officials ruled out extraterrestrials, Van Herc said, I haven't ruled out anything at this point. The Pentagon officials said they were still trying to determine what exactly the objects were and said they had considered using the jet's guns instead of missiles, but it proved to be too difficult. They drew a strong distinction between the three shot down over this weekend and the balloon from China. The extraordinary air defense activity began in late January when a white orb, the officials said, was from China, appeared over the U.S. and then hovered above the nation for days before fighter jets downed it off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. That event played out over live stream. Since then, many Americans have been captivated by the drama playing out in the skies as fighter jets scramble to shoot down objects. The latest brought down was first detected on Saturday evening over Montana, but it was initially thought to be an anomaly. Radar picked it up again Sunday, hovering over the upper peninsula of Michigan, and it was going over Lake Huron, Pentagon officials said Sunday. U.S. and Canadian authorities had restricted some airspace over the lake earlier Sunday as planes were scrambled to intercept and try to identify the object. According to a senior administration official, the object was octagonal, with strings hanging off, but had no discernible payload. It was flying low at about 20,000 feet, said the official who spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity to discuss it. Meanwhile, U.S. officials were trying to precisely identify two other objects shot down by F-22 fighter jets and were working to determine whether China was responsible as concerns escalated about what Washington said was Beijing's large-scale aerial surveillance program. An object shot down Saturday over Canada's Yukon was described by U.S. officials as a balloon significantly smaller than the balloon. Uh, The three sizes of school buses, uh, I'm going to say that again, the size of three school buses, it was how big that balloon was, hit by a missile February 4th. 
A flying object brought down over the remote northern coast of Alaska on Friday was more cylindrical and described as a type of airship. Both were believed to have a payload either attached or suspended from them, according to the officials who spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity to discuss the ongoing investigation. Officials were not able to say who launched the objects and were seeking to figure out their origin. Three objects were much, the three objects were much smaller in size, different in appearance, and flew at lower altitudes than the suspected spy balloon that fell into the Atlantic Ocean after the U.S. missile strike. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told ABC's This Week that U.S. officials were working quickly to recover debris. Using shorthand to describe the objects as balloons, he said U.S. military and intelligence officials were focused like a laser on gathering and accumulating the information, then compiling a comprehensive analysis. The bottom line is, until a few months ago, we didn't know about these balloons. Schumer, Democrat of New York, said of the spy program that the administration is linked to the People's Liberation Army, China's military. It is wild that we didn't know, he said. Eight days ago, F-22 jets downed the large white balloon that had wafted over the U.S. for days at an altitude of about 60,000 feet. U.S. officials immediately blamed China, saying the balloon was equipped to detect and collect intelligence signals and could maneuver itself. White House officials said improved surveillance capabilities helped detect it. China's foreign ministry said the unmanned balloon was a civilian meteorological airship that had blown off course. Beijing said the U.S. had overreacted by shooting it down. And in the latest news today with China, they are now blaming the U.S. for floating balloons over their country. So the drama with balloons continues now. In other front page news, Lechner Lumber to relocate. Lumberyard plans new office building and warehouse. It's written by Dolly A. Butts. Dateline Sioux City. Lechner Lumber plans to relocate its operations to a new facility at the northeast corner of Floyd Boulevard and 4th Street. The project, which represents a capital investment of $1.4 million, includes the construction of a new 1,872-square-foot office building and 11,985-square-foot warehouse building with an entrance off 5th Street. The Sioux City Council is expected to vote on a resolution Monday that, if approved, would reauthorize a development agreement and minimum assessment agreement with Cyclone on on Floyd LLC. This separate entity was established to construct and own the new facility. Cyclone on Floyd LLC will lease the facility back to Lechner Lumber. According to city documents, Lechner Lumber currently leases space at 200 South Court Street. The full service supplier of building materials for commercial and residential customers will retain all nine employees after relocation. The new location will significantly increase operational efficiencies and safety by allowing the company's buildings to be on one site, the document stated. City staff has worked to finalize a development agreement and minimum assessment agreement with Cyclone on Floyd LLC to provide assistance for the project. As part of the proposed development agreement and minimum assessment agreement, the developer will commit to investing $1.4 million to construct a new office and warehouse building as well as enter into a minimum assessment agreement of $1.2 million beginning January 1, 2024, which will continue for a period of 10 years. 
The city, in turn, will provide 75% property tax rebates on the new incremental taxes created by the value added to the property for a period of five years. Total assistance is estimated at $145,000. Our final front-page story here in the Sioux City Journal Monday edition is Missouri River ice jams slowly degrading. Subheadline says 20-mile ice jam caused river to drop to record low. This story by Nancy Garter, that last name spelled G-A-A-R-D-E-R. She writes for the Omaha World Herald. Her article airs here in the Sioux City Journal. Dateline Omaha, Nebraska. Emergency managers have been able to shift their attention away from the large, unusual ice jam on the Missouri River and instead focus on the more typical annual threat of ice-related flooding on eastern Nebraska's other rivers. The situation on the Missouri River has stabilized, said John Remus, who oversees management of the Missouri River for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In December, a 20-mile-long ice jam caused the Missouri River at Omaha to drop to a record low jeopardizing the operations of Omaha metro area uh, utilities. Shortly thereafter, the jam eased enough for the water to flow through it and has continued to uh, happen. The serpentine ice jam formed among farms near Blencoe, Iowa, curved west toward Blair, looped east around the DeSoto Bend National Wildlife Refuge, and came to an end near Omaha's N.P. Dodge Park and the Interstate 680 Bridge. We've seen a little bit of deterioration for the good, he said. Are we out of the woods? No, not until the ice is completely gone, but the risk is significantly reduced. David Pearson, a hydrologist with the National Weather Service, said emergency managers are now more focused on conditions along rivers that typically pose an ice jam threat, the Platte, Elkhorn, and Loop. The threat along those rivers is about average to a little higher than average, he said. On Friday, emergency managers and the Weather Service had a conference call to share news on the condition of the ice, he said. A cold snap next week will probably form more ice on area rivers, Pearson said. But within a few weeks, seasonal changes will be significant enough to make it harder for additional ice to form. The key going forward is whether that produces a steady melt, he said. Moving on now to page two of the Sioux City Journal. Candy company fine after workers fall into vat of chocolate. This is a story out of Pennsylvania, written by the Associated Press, Dateline Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Federal workplace safety authorities have fined a central Pennsylvania confectionery factory more than $14,500 following an accident last year in which two workers fell into a vat of chocolate. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration cited Mars Wrigley in the June accident at the Elizabethtown M&M Mars factory saying the workers were not authorized to work in the tanks and weren't trained on the proper proper safety procedures for the equipment. Officials said two workers employed by an outside contracting firm fell into the partially filled chocolate tank while doing maintenance work. Emergency responders were able to free the pair by cutting a hole in the bottom of the tank, officials said. Both were taken to hospitals, one by helicopter. The company representative told reporters last week that the safety of workers and outside contractors is a top priority for our business. As always, we appreciate OSHA's collaborative approach to working with us to conduct the after-action review, the representative said. If it wasn't for the injury, falling into a vat of chocolate or a vat of chocolate uh, would be uh, not so bad, I think. You know, it'd be kind of like swimming in champagne or Jack Daniels. 
Moving on now to other news. Virginia, Maryland, vie for a new FBI headquarters. Another AP story, Dateline Springfield, Virginia. Virginia, Virginia lawmakers are making their final push to build a new FBI headquarters in their state, while Maryland officials tried to persuade the federal government to put it in Maryland. The Washington Post reports that the jockeying is happening as the General Services Administration gets closer to a decision in a decade-plus-long effort. In a letter to the GSA and FBI uh, submitted February 3rd, Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, and most of the Virginia congressional delegation made a detailed case in hopes of swaying the federal government to prefer a site in Springfield, Virginia, instead of locations in Landover and Greenbelt in Maryland. Virginia lawmakers also sought to compete more aggressively with Maryland on one component that Maryland has sought to elevate, that building the FBI and their community advances racial equity. Joe Biden signed an executive order in 2021 that made advancing racial equity through federal agencies a priority, a move that consists or considers the effects of federal investment in certain underserved communities. We didn't want to shortchange ourselves in what we believe is a very powerful equity argument for Springfield and Fairfax. Representative Gerald Connolly, a Democrat who represents Springfield, said, we're a profoundly diverse community. Springfield itself is a major minority community. In an 11th hour negotiation with Virginia congressional leaders, Maryland lawmakers secured language in a December federal spending bill that gave both states 90 more days to make final presentations to the GSA. Those consultations will begin in the coming weeks. The agency is preparing to select the FBI headquarters location using five criteria, weighted most at 35% is serving the FBI mission, including proximity to the FBI Academy in Quantico and the Justice Department. Transportation access is weighted as 25%. Development flexibility is weighted as 15%. Promoting racial equity and sustainable siting is weighed as 15%. And cost to acquire and prepare the site is weighted as 10%. Maryland Representatives Steny Hoyer and Senators Ben Cardin and Chris Van Hollen, who are all Democrats, unsuccessfully sought to adjust how the criteria was weighted in the spending bill. They believe the current weighting unfairly advantages the Springfield location for its proximity to Quantico a, and deprioritizes racial equity and cost. The way they waited, this thing is just wrong, said Cardin, arguing it doesn't make sense to put so much stock into proximity to Quantico and less into equity and cost. It looks like it's just aimed at trying to help tilt the scales towards Virginia. Hoyer said Maryland is seeking to give equal weight to each criteria, but their efforts rankled the Virginia delegation, which believes the weighting is sound and that lawmakers should not use their muscle to micromanage the GSA selection process. As Virginia Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, put it, FBI spokeswoman Sophia Kentler said in a statement that proximity to Quantico was included because the FBI Academy is, quote, a core part of FBI day-to-day -day operations today and in the future, she said. Asked whether the criteria was set in stone, and to respond to Maryland's criticisms, the GSA simply said the agency would hear everyone out. GSA and FBI are committed to deliberate and thoughtful engagement with our partners in Congress on this project, including through consultations outlined in the Appropriations Act.
the GSA said in a statement. We look forward to receiving feedback from stakeholders and are also committed to a fair and transparent process that results in selecting a site that best meets the needs of the FBI and the American people over the long term. The current headquarters in Washington has long concerned Congress as the building has deteriorated. The Maryland and Virginia consultations with the GSA are expected to begin the week of February 27th or March 6th. And this almost sounds like we're rehashing the Constitutional Convention again, arguing about where stuff's going to be, like uh, the capital city, for instance. (laughs) But enough of that. Moving on now to more news here as we go on to page A3, because we have expelled everything on pages A1 and A2. We have a little bit of time remaining before we have to check in with our obituaries. Top Talker is what this one is labeled. Super Bowl ads use nostalgia and star power and light laughs. It was written by May Anderson and Associated Press, Dateline, New York. Off the field at the Super Bowl, 50-plus marketers are having a battle of their own. They're trying to reach the more than 100 million people turning into the broadcast on Fox. It's a pricey proposition. Ads can cost as much as $7 million for 30 seconds. That's a heck of a spot rate. They used light humor, plenty of cute animals, and lots of celebrities to try to win over more than 100 million viewers that tune in each year. It was a year of change for the Super Bowl since other alcohol ads were allowed to air after Anheuser-Busch gave up its exclusivity deal and the halftime show sponsor changed from Pepsi to Apple Music after a decade. This was a warm and fuzzy year where familiar faces were far more of a presence than controversial themes or hard-hitting humor said CEO of Brand Federation, Kelly O'Keefe. Starry Night. Many of the ads were released early, but there were still some surprises in store for viewers. In his first Super Bowl ad, Dunkin' Donuts enlisted superfan Ben Affleck and wife Jennifer Lopez. In the ad, Affleck mans the drive-through booth at a Dunkin' Donuts in Medford, Massachusetts with a Boston accent and shocks customers. Lopez comes through the line of cars and asks him what he's doing. You're embarrassing me in front of my friends, he says. Grab me a glazed, she demands. Affleck has a long association with the brand and is often spotted carrying Dunkin' Donuts drinks in paparazzi photos. He directed the ad, too. GM and Netflix enlisted Will Ferrell to tout their deal to show more electric vehicles in Netflix shows. Bud Light's ad showed Miles Teller and his wife Kaylee and dog Bugsy, who all dance to hold music. Melissa... McCarthy sings a jingle for Booking.com, and Adam Driver makes multiples of himself for Squarespace. Pepsi Zero Sugar hired Ben Stiller and Steve Martin. Avocados from Mexico enlists Anna Ferris for one of its few slightly risque ads of this year that envisions a present where everyone is naked, including the Statue of Liberty. Tennis star Serena Williams stars in two ads, one for Michelob Ultra and one for Remy Martin. T-Mobile enlisted Bradley Cooper and his mom to star in a blooper-filled ad. One unusual star, a group of donors brought two ads to feature Jesus in a campaign called He Gets Us. Nostalgia Fest. Many marketers tried to capitalize on well-loved TV and movie properties. This year, online shopping site Rakuten hired Alicia Silverstone and Elisa Donovan to recreate a scene from the 90s romance comedy Clueless. Popcorners, a snack brand from Frito-Lay, brought back Breaking Bad, which first aired in 2008, and stars Brian Cranston as Aaron Paul. Other advertisers trying to capitalize on favorite content from years past, 
T-Mobile's ad showed John Travolta singing a T-Mobile home internet-themed version of Summer Nights from the movie Grease with Scrubs stars Donald Faison and Zach Braff. Michelob Ultra evoked Caddyshack by setting its ad at the Bushwood Country Club that's in the movie. Light humor? Those not using celebrities opted for humor. Kia showed a dad on an epic quest to pick up his child's forgotten binky and E asterisk trade bought E trade bought, brought back its famous talking babies. This time they attend a wedding. Some ads were offbeat. A tubby ad or tubby T U B I ad uh, showed giant blue rabbits throwing people into holes to demonstrate the idea that tubby helps people find rabbit holes you didn't know you were looking for. Rams ad went slightly risque and poked fun at erectile dysfunction ads by having couples talk about premature electrification. Charles Taylor, a professor at Villanova University, said the approach just might work. Given the turn the Super Bowl has taken away from sexual appeals or humor over the past decade, this will make the ad stand out and generate buzz, Taylor said. While they are risking offending some customers, I think the ad will be remembered and mostly well-received. All right, that takes care of all that. Moving on now to our halfway point and our obituaries. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal. This is the Monday, February 13th edition here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of our audience. I'm your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Haup. If you have any questions or comments on this or any other IRIS program, feel free to give us a call at 515-243-6833. Typically, this is the part of the program where we take a look at the obituaries posted in the current edition we are reading. However, there are none listed in today's edition of the Sioux City Journal, so we will move on now to other news, opinions, and sports. If we have any opinions, I'm not even seeing that today. I want to move on to the uh, nation and world section now. We'll bring you some of the uh, happenings out and about, and then we'll get into some of the sports here. In the digest section, Minnesota officer kills a knife-wielding man. This is a story out of St. Paul, Minnesota, where a police officer shot and killed a man who allegedly threatened officers with a knife, police said. The shooting happened at about 5 p.m. Saturday in St. Paul. Sergeant Mike, Mike Ernster said officers from the St. Paul Police Department were called to an apartment building after a report of a man threatening people with a knife inside a community room. Arriving officers confronted the man and told him to drop the knife. Ernster said the man came toward the officers, one of whom deployed a taser and the other shot the man who died at the scene. His name has not been released. The officers whose names haven't been released were unhurt. They were placed on administrative leave pending an investigation by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Ernster said the officers were wearing body cameras that recorded the confrontation. Police arrest two in January mass shooting. Dateline Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Police in Louisiana's capital have arrested two people for a mass shooting that left 12 people wounded in a nightclub in January. Two 19-year-olds, Nikhail Franklin and Jai Sean Jackson were arrested Friday, the Baton Rouge Police Department said. Franklin was charged with 12 counts of attempted first-degree murder, while Jackson was charged with 12 counts of principal to attempted first-degree murder. 
On January 22nd, shots rang out around 1.30 a.m. in the Dyer Bar and Lounge in Baton Rouge. A dozen people were injured and most sustained non-life-threatening injuries. Three victims were initially listed in critical condition, but their conditions later improved. Police say they believe the shooting was not a random act of violence and that it was targeted. Sergeant Elgene McKinley Jr., a, plo- a police spokesman, said uh, the Associated Pre- told the Associated Press in the days following the shooting that investigators believe the shooting was targeted at one party goer and that bystanders were hurt in the process. In the brief section, Cyclone. And uh, one of our Iris readers here, their daughter just went through this uh, in New Zealand, where the national carrier canceled dozens of flights Sunday as Aucklanders braced for a deluge from Cyclone Gabriel. Two weeks after a record-breaking storm swamped the nation's largest city and killed four people. Air New Zealand said it was canceling all domestic flights to and from Auckland through midday Tuesday, as well as many international flights. News from Israel. Security personnel sealed up the family home of a Palestinian man who careened his car into a Jerusalem bus stop, Israeli police said Sunday. Three Israelis, including brothers ages 8 and 6, were killed and several were injured in Friday's attack. From Cyprus, former foreign ministry minister Nikos Christodoulides, or Doulides, I hope I'm saying that right, Christodoulides, I think is how that's said, was elected as the new president of Cyprus in a runoff election Sunday. His rival, veteran diplomat Andreas Marvoyanis, conceded defeat. Ammonia leak, a shelter-in-place advisory issued in suburban Houston because of a leak of ammonia gas from a refrigeration line at a warehouse was lifted early Sunday afternoon, officials said. No injuries were reported. From Nicaragua, Pope Francis on Sunday expressed sadness and worry at the news that Roman Catholic Bishop Rolando Alvarez, an outspoken critic of the Nicaraguan government, was sentenced two days earlier to 26 years in prison in the latest move against the Catholic Church and government opponents. And finally, from China and Iran, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi will meet with his counterpart Xi Jinping during his three-day trip to China starting Tuesday as the two U.S. rivals seek further cooperation. And the Axis builds. From there, we take you on to Turkey and earthquakes. Officials targeting contractors and blame game begins as rescues continue. More than 33,000 people are dead, as reported here. It's written by Justin Spike, Zeynep Bilgensoy, and Sarah L. Deeb from the Associated Press. Dateline Antica, Antica, Turkey. That city spelled A-N-T-A-K-Y-A, Antanka, Turkey. Turkish authorities are targeting contractors allegedly linked with buildings that collapsed in the powerful February 6th earthquakes as rescuers found more survivors in the rubble Sunday, including a pregnant woman and two children in the disaster that killed over 33,000 people. The death toll from the magnitude 7.8 and 7.5 quakes that struck nine hours apart in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria rose to 33,185 and was certain to increase as search teams find more bodies. As despair bred rage at the agonizingly slow rescues, the focus turned to assigning blame. 
Turkish Justice Minister Baker Bozdag said 131 people were under investigation for their alleged responsibility in the construction of buildings that failed to withstand the quakes. While the quakes were powerful, many in Turkey blame faulty construction for multiplying the devastation. Turkey's construction codes meet current earthquake engineering standards, at least on paper but they are rarely enforced, explaining why thousands of buildings toppled over or pancaked down onto the people inside. Among those facing scrutiny were two people arrested in Gaziantep province on suspicion of cutting down columns to make extra room in a building that collapsed, the state-run Anadolu agency said. The Justice Ministry said three people were under arrest pending trial, seven were detained, and another Seven were barred from leaving Turkey. Two contractors held responsible for the destruction of several buildings in Adaman were arrested Sunday at Istanbul Airport while trying to leave the country, the private DHA news agency and other media reported. One detained contractor, Yabaz Caracas, told DHA, My conscience is clear. I built 44 buildings. Four of them were demolished. I did everything according to the rules. Rescuers reported finding more survivors amid increasingly long odds. Thermal cameras were used on piles of concrete and metal as crews demanded silence so they could hear those trapped. In hard-hit Hatay province, a 50-year-old woman who appeared badly injured was carried out by crews in the town of Iskandera. Similar rescues in the province saved two other women, one of them pregnant, according to broadcasters TRT and Haber Turk. Haber Turk showed a six-year-old boy rescued from his wrecked home in Adaman. An exhausted rescuer removed his surgical mask and took deep breaths as a group of women cried in joy. Health Minister Ferretin Koka posted a video of a young girl in a navy blue jumper who was found alive. There is always hope, he tweeted. Rescuers in Antiyaka, elsewhere in Hatay province, pulled a man in his late 20s or 30s from the rubble, saying he was one of nine still trapped in the building. But when asked if he knew of any others, he said he hadn't heard anyone for three days. German and Turkish workers rescued an 88-year-old in Kirkan, German news agency DPA reported. Italian and Turkish rescuers found a 35-year-old man in Antiyaka who appeared unscathed, private NTV television reported. A child was freed overnight in the town of Nizip in Gaziantep, state-run Anadolu agency said, while a 32-year-old woman was found in the ruins of an eight-story building in Antayaka and asked for tea when she emerged, according to NTV. Those were the rare exceptions. Backhoes and bulldozers prepared a large cemetery in Antayaka's outskirts as trucks and ambulances arrived continuously with black body bags. And our final story here before I bring you over to the uh, sports section. Amid tensions, U.S. holds drills in South China Sea. This written by the Associated Press, Stateline Beijing. The U.S. Navy and Marine Corps are holding joint exercises in the South China Sea at a time of heightened tensions with Beijing over the shooting down of a suspected Chinese spy balloon. The 7th Fleet, based in Japan, said Sunday that the USS Nimitz Aircraft Carrier Strike Group and the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit have been conducting integrated expeditionary strike force operations in the South China Sea. It said exercises involving ships, ground forces, and aircraft took place Saturday, but gave no details on when it began or whether they had ended. 
China claims virtually the entire South China Sea and strongly objects to military activity by other nations in the contested waterway through which $5 trillion in goods are shipped every day. The U.S. takes no official position on sovereignty in the South China Sea, but maintains that freedom of navigation and overflight must be preserved. Several times a year, it sends ships sailing past fortified Chinese outposts in the Spratly Islands, promoting prompting, rather, furious protests from Beijing. The U.S. has also been strengthening its defense alliance with the Philippines, which has faced encroachment on islands and fisheries by the Chinese Coast Guard and nominally civilian but government-backed fleets. The U.S. military exercises were planned in advance. They come as already tense relations between Washington and Beijing have been exacerbated by a diplomatic row sparked by the balloon, which was shot down last weekend in U.S. airspace, off the coast of South Carolina. The United States has since blacklisted six Chinese entities it said were linked to Beijing's aerospace programs as part of its response to the incident. The House of Representatives also voted unanimously to condemn China for a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty and efforts to deceive the international community through false claims about its intelligence collection campaigns. All right, moving on now to the sports section in this edition of the Sioux City Journal. There is not much local in here, so I'll bring you some of this before we kind of uh, skip along to something else, let's say. All right. Our headline photo shows Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes celebrating against the Philadelphia Eagles during that victory on Sunday. Shows him a photo of his backside. You can't see his face, but he's still wearing the helmet, and he's pointing his hand and finger in the air. Super Bowl magic man. Mahomes Chiefs beat Eagles 38-35. to Story written by Rob Mahdi, or M-A-A-D-D-I, the Associated Press, Dateline Glendale, Arizona. Right. By the way, all, most of us Iowans are rooting for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. I know there's probably some Eagles people out there, but big deal. Uh, this is pretty solidly Chiefs territory around here. Patrick Mahomes shook off an ankle injury, turned back into a magician, and pulled out another comeback on the biggest stage to help the Kansas City Chiefs win their second Super Bowl in four years. Mahomes threw two touchdown passes in the fourth quarter and scrambled 26 yards on the go-ahead drive before Harrison Butker kicked a 27-yard field goal with eight seconds left to give the Chiefs a 38-35 victory over the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday night. Mahomes and Hurts excelled in the first Super Bowl matchup featuring two black starting quarterbacks. But Mahomes, the two-time AP NFL MVP, turned it up the second half after reaggravating a sprained right ankle. Chiefs coach Andy Reid, who couldn't win the big game in Philadelphia, beat his former team to earn his second ring with Mahomes and the Chiefs. With a score tied at 35-35, the Eagles tried to let the Chiefs score a touchdown with under two minutes left so they could get the ball back. But Jarek McKinnon slid at, at the two, forcing the Eagles to use their last timeout. After Mahomes took a knee two times, Butker nailed his kick, sending thousands of red-clad Chiefs fans into a frenzy. The Chiefs won their super, second Super Bowl following the 2019 season, 50 years after the first one. It took just three years to get another Lombardi. Chiefs fans were outnumbered in the stadium, but they did their part to silence the boisterous Philly fans with a tomahawk chop chant. Down 24-14 with a limping Mahomes, the Chiefs followed up Rihanna's electrifying halftime performance with a sensational offensive outburst. 
Mahomes, who suffered a high ankle sprain in the divisional round, hurt it again on a three-yard scramble late in the second quarter. He limped off the field but showed no ill effects on Kansas City's next possession. Mahomes slipped, several players lost their footing on the natural grass surface in the pocket, yet somehow regained his balance and scrambled 14 yards to the Eagles' four. Setting up Isaiah, Isaiah Pacheco's one-yard touchdown run that cut the deficit to 24-21. to after Jake Elliott's 33-yard field goal extended Philadelphia's lead 27-21, the Chiefs struck again. Mahomes tossed a five-yard touchdown pass to a wide-open Cardarius Tony to give Kansas City its first lead at 28-27 early in the fourth quarter. The Chiefs tightened up their defense, forcing Philly to punt. Then Tony returned a line drive kick 65 yards to the Eagles' five for the longest punt return in Super Bowl history. On third down from the four, Mahomes connected with Sky Moore to extend their lead to 35-27. Moore also was wide open on the play. But the Eagles wouldn't go away. Hertz hit Devonta Smith for a 46-yard gain to the Chiefs and ran in for his third score of the game. He also ran in for the two-point conversion to tie it at 35-35 with five minutes and 15 seconds to go. As Fly Eagles Fly reverberated throughout the stadium, Mahomes and the Chiefs went back to work. The 27-year-old Mahomes became the third player to win his second NFL MVP award before age 28. He also became the youngest quarterback to start three Super Bowls. Then Mahomes became the first player to win the Super Bowl the same season he was MVP after nine straight players lost. Just five years after winning the first Super Bowl in franchise history, the Eagles came close with a new coach, Nick Sirianni, and new quarterback, Hertz. Hertz set a Super Bowl record with 70 yards rushing and tied a record with three rushing scores. The Eagles marched 75 yards down the field with Hertz scoring from the one for a 7-0 lead and controlled the ball for almost 22 minutes in the first half. Hertz, who missed two games late in the season with a shoulder injury, had no trouble throwing a perfect deep ball to A.J. Brown, giving the Eagles a 14-7 lead with a 45-yard connection on the first play of the second quarter. But Hertz then made a rare mistake on the next drive when he fumbled without being hit while scrambling away from pressure. Nick Bolton picked it up and raced 36 yards for a score that made it 14-14. Hertz had just eight turnovers this season, six picks and two fumbles. Undeterred, Hertz kept running. He took off for 14 yards on the first play after the fumble. On fourth and five from the Chiefs' 44, Hertz ran 28 yards. He finished off the drive with a four-yard touchdown run to put Philadelphia ahead 21-14. Elliott kicked a 35-yard field goal to send the Eagles into halftime, leading 24-14. Mahomes connected with... Travis Kelsey on an 18-yard touchdown pass in the right corner to tie it at 7-7 in the first quarter. The Chiefs' all-pro tight end and Eagles' all-pro center, Jason Kelsey, became the first set of brothers to play against each other in the Super Bowl. Their mom, Donna Kelsey, wore a half-red, half-green jersey with number 87 on the front for Travis and number 62 on the back for Jason. She sat in a suite between NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and DeMar Hamlin. Eagles fans turned State Farm Stadium into a sea of green, chanting E-A-G-L-E-S and singing the team's fight song after each score, but they left disappointed. 
Reed won more games than any coach in team history during 14 seasons with the Eagles, but the one knock against him was what he couldn't win, that he couldn't win the big one. Reed finally earned his ring with the Chiefs when they beat San Francisco in the Super Bowl following the 2019 season. They went back the next year and lost to Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The first Super Bowl involving both the number one seed since the Eagles beat the Patriots in February 2018 lived up to its hype. It was the third highest scoring Super Bowl and the Eagles scored the most points by a losing team. Plenty of celebrities were the Eagles fans wearing, including Bradley Cooper and Kevin Hart, who wore a Reggie White number 2 jersey. Paul McCartney and LeBron James also were in the crowd of 67,827. Another Super Bowl story here. Questionable late flag takes drama out of ending. This written by David Brand of the Associated Press, Dateline Glendale, Arizona. A questionable late penalty on Philadelphia Eagles cornerback James Bradbury with less than two minutes remaining meant that a scintillating Super Bowl 57 had a bit of an underwhelming finish. Kansas City won its second Super Bowl in four years by beating the Eagles 38-35 on Sunday in Glendale, Arizona. It was an exciting back-and-forth game that saw the Chiefs claw back from a 10-point halftime deficit. One of the few gripes for football fans, particularly Eagles fans, was the anticlimactic finish. The Chiefs were driving and faced third and eight at the Eagles' 15-yard line with a minute 54 remaining when Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes threw incomplete to Juju Smith-Schuster. But officials flagged Bradbury for defensive holding, which negated the incompletion and, more importantly, gave the Chiefs a first down. Replay showed that Bradbury made light contact with Smith-Schuster, but it didn't appear to affect the play. Still, the cornerback said he wasn't upset at officials for the call. It was a holding. I tugged his jersey, Bradbury said. I was hoping they would let it slide. Kansas City was able to essentially run out the clock from that point forward. Chiefs running back Jarek McKinnon made a smart move on the ensuing down, purposefully sliding two yards short of the goal line instead of scoring a touchdown. Mahomes was then able to kneel twice as the clock ran down after the Eagles used their final timeout. Harrison Butker kicked a 27-yard field goal with eight seconds remaining that proved to be a winner. All right, that's all we're going to do for sports today. Moving on now to the nation's section here in the Sioux City Journal. FTX founder keeps talking and ignoring typical legal strategy. This written by Ken Sweet of the Associated Press, Dateline, New York. For federal prosecutors, Sam Bankman-Fried could be the gift that keeps on giving. After the November collapse of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange he founded in 2019, Bankman-Fried unexpectedly gave a series of interviews intended to present his version of events. He was indicted in December and charged with perpetuating one of the biggest frauds in U.S. history. And he's still talking, either in person or on the Internet. The atypical chattiness for a criminal defendant is likely causing Bankman-Fried's attorneys to scratch their heads or worse. Prosecutors can use any statements, tweets, or other communications against him at his trial, which is scheduled for October. Prosecutors love when defendants shoot their mouths off, said Daniel R. Alonzo, a former federal prosecutor who is now a white-collar criminal defense attorney. If Bankman-Fried's public comments before trial can be proven false during the, tri the trial, it may undermine his credibility with the jury, he said. Bankman-Fried returned to Manhattan Federal Court on Thursday for a hearing into whether his bail package will be altered to prevent witness tampering. Prosecutors say he sent an encrypted message over the Signal texting app on January 15th to the general counsel of FTX U.S., 
a likely witness for the government. Lawyers were scheduled to submit more information to Judge Louis A. Kaplan by Monday before he makes a decision about the bail package. Bankman-Fried has been confined with his electronic monitoring to his parents' home in Palo Alto, California, since December. Before its collapse, FTX was the world's second-largest crypto exchange, and Bankman-Fried, age 30, was its CEO and billionaire several times over, at least on paper. Celebrities and politicians alike vouched for FTX and its founder, and Bankman-Fried was considered a leading figure in the crypto world. However, the broad collapse of cryptocurrencies last year caused severe financial stress for numerous companies in the crypto universe, from lenders to exchanges to firms focused on investing in digital assets. FTX sought bankruptcy protection in November after customers pulled out their money in the crypto equivalent of a bank run. Federal prosecutors have said Bankman-Fried devised a scheme and artifice to defraud FTX's customers and investors right from FTX's inception. They say he illegally diverted their money to cover expenses, debts, and risky trades at Almedia Research, the crypto hedge fund he started in 2017 to make lavish real estate purchases and large political donations. In interviews and Twitter posts, Bankman Freed has said he never intended to defraud anyone. He's maintained that running FTX took up all his time and that he was unaware of the financial problems at the hedge fund until it was too late. Those assertions are likely to be refuted by one of the government's key witnesses, Caroline Eliason. The former CEO of Almeida has agreed to plead guilty for her role in FTX's collapse and to testify against Bankman Freed. In a plea hearing in December, Ellison said she knew FTX had used billions in customer funds to make loans to Almeida and agreed with Bankman Freed and others to take steps to conceal the nature of the loans. Gary Wang, who co-founded FTX with Bankman Freed, also struck a deal for cooperation. At his own plea hearing, Wang said he, that he made changes to computer code to enable FTX customers' funds to be transferred to Almeida. Another claim made often by Bankman Freed is that he's trying to help recover funds for FTX customers, but that FTX's new management has cut him off and has taken steps, including filing for bankruptcy protection, that could inhibit customers from getting their money back. Interesting story there. And that's all in the Sioux City Journal for today. With that all being read and said, we tell you that brings us to the end of today's reading here for this Monday, February 13th, 2023 AD. I'm your reader at the microphone. My name is Andrew Hopp filling in saying thanks so much for listening. Have a great day and straight ahead. <laughs>